Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part one of the first book of Samuel, chapters 9 through 15, and now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hi, everybody. Welcome today to our discussion of David and the Psalms. Today, we'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapters 9 to 15. And the theme today is to obey is better than sacrifice. What does that possibly mean? To obey is better than sacrifice. Well, in 1 Samuel 15, Saul chose to keep Amalekite king Agag alive. He took the plunder from the battle rather than destroy everything as God had commanded in his word. Saul did not obey. The new king Saul felt he knew better than God. He knew better than God's word. Do you ever think that you know better than God? Like, you know a prayer request that you have and for one of your kids, and I, I got it all figured out, God. All you have to do is da 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 I know better than God. To obey is better than sacrifice. When Samuel confronted Saul, Saul said, I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites. I brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers, it was the soldiers, they took the sheep and the cattle and the plunder and the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord, your God, at Gilgal. Since when is it not the Lord my God, the Lord your God, Samuel? At the end of this chapter, we see a change in Saul. Samuel says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord, Saul? To obey is better than sacrifice. That's our theme today. God's approval is worth way more than the approval of people. At our lessons end, Saul is rating, his rating with people matters more to him. You know, his approval rating with people matters more to him than his rating with God. The prophet Samuel would be the one to point that out to Saul. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Two answers are given to that question in the scripture. The first is Samuel's response. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Saul, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. So Saul's disobedience was an act of rebellion, iniquity, or sin, and idolatry. It's going to cost him a forever kingdom. The second answer is given by Saul in his own confession. He said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's command of your instructions. I was afraid of men, and so I gave in to them. Have you ever been afraid of your kids, and so you give in to them? I have. Saul admitted that in his sacrifice was a transgression, sin. It was against God's command. It was the result of seeking the approval of people instead of God. There are several reasons why obedience to God is better than making sacrificial offerings to him. Five things about disobedience. Disobedience is an act of rebellion. Disobedience is sinful. Disobedience is a form of idolatry, putting something else above God. And disobedience disrespects God's holy word. And disobedience is based on looking good to other people rather than to God. To obey is better than sacrifice. Now, in the New Testament, when Jesus is calling Matthew as a disciple, Jesus saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed Jesus. 
he heard and he obeyed. And Jesus sat at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He said to those Pharisees, go and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. Jesus changes one word there. To obey is better than sacrifice. Jesus says, I desire mercy. I desire love, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Now today, to obey is better than sacrifice because Jesus hadn't died yet. Jesus is going to be that final once for all sacrifice on the cross. But he becomes that by being totally obedient to the Father, who's the true King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is perfect in his obedience to the Father every single step along the way, all the way to death on a cross. And Jesus says, I desire love. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but to call the sinners. And sinners who are humble enough to repent of their own sins, he can't resist. He can't resist a repentant sinner. He will forgive us of anything. But we have to humble ourselves and go to confession. He tells a parable in Luke 18 to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised other people who weren't as good as them. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a sinful tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. He prayed with himself. Did you catch that? God, I thank thee that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to the heavens. He beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. God hates the arrogant and the proud. He who humbles himself will be raised up, exalted. It's exactly what Hannah and Mary both prayed in their prayers. The proud, the arrogant, he'll spew from his mouth. The bow of the mighty will be broken. In Mary's prayer, he scatters the proud. He puts down the mighty. But he exalts those of low esteem, the humble, the rich. He sends away empty, the poor he feeds. To obey is better than sacrifice. Again, Mary is the model disciple of this. She's an obedient, humble, heart of love, and she, the lowliest little 13-year-old Jewish virgin, is going to be exalted high above the heavens. The humbled will be exalted. Mary, the lowly, is crowned queen of heaven and of earth. She is the new ark of a new covenant. She is the new Eve. She is the mother, the queen of a new creation. She is the queen of all the angels. She is the queen of all the saints. And she is our queen mother here on earth, humble and obedient to God's word saying, let it be done to me according to your word. She's going to hear the word of God and she's going to obey. And she's going to go from lowly to exalted queen of heaven. This is how God works to obey his word. To obey is better than sacrifice. She'll sacrifice her entire life as well. But it will all be a blessing. Now, some people after this lesson said, oh man, I'm lost. This lesson was over the top. I am so lost. So let's look at some historical context to help you. 
When Moses gets to the edge of the promised land, they're almost there, they're almost there. He can see it. He can see it in the distance. Here it is, there it is. But the Lord showed him all the land as far as Dan and Naphtali and Ephraim and Manasseh and Judah, all the tribes, all the land. But the Lord God said to Moses, this is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, Moses, but you shall not go over there. God is calling this good and faithful servant to the eternal promised land. He's been a good and faithful servant and God's going to let him rest. And God himself buries Moses' body. And no man to this day has ever found the place of the burial. God buried Moses, his servant. What a beautiful image. And Jude talks about it in the New Testament, the book of Jude. It's only one chapter, but it tells us in Jude that the archangel Michael was contending with the devil. They were disputing over the body of Moses. They were fighting over who got it. And guess who won? Michael, the archangel, got the body of Moses because we see Moses in the transfiguration. Before Moses died, he anointed Joshua to be his successor. Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus saves, same derivative of Jesus. Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom and Moses put his hands upon him and the people of Israel obeyed him as the Lord commanded. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, Joshua, became the one who would lead them into the promised land. God said, all you, Joshua, and all the people, this is the land which I am giving you, and he he takes them across. He parts the, the Jordan River and they go through on dry shot, just like Moses had done. The problem is the promised land is occupied by enemies, huge enemies. It wasn't like the land was just empty and they could have it. God gave them the land, but it's full of enemies. Every place on the sole of your foot where you tread I gave it to Moses. I promised Moses from the wilderness of Lebanon, as far as the great river of Euphrates, to the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the territory, all this will be yours. Joshua, be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened. Don't be dismayed. The Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Moses had sent out spies before he died, one from every single tribe. He had spied out the Holy Land. They knew it was full of enemies. They knew, they knew what they were up against. Moses called the name of Hosea, the son of Nun, he changed it to Joshua, God saves. He told Joshua, be strong and courageous. When they spied out that land, they, they, they wanted to know. Moses said, go see the people who are dwelling there and let me know. Come back and tell us, are they strong or are they weak? Are there few or are there many? Are they good or are they bad? Are, do they have camps or, or just strongholds? I mean, is it tents or do they have brick buildings? Are, are they rich or are they poor? And, and, and find out if there's wood, because if there's wood, we can build. Be of good courage, Joshua. Bring back some fruit of the land. And it was time for the grape harvest and they brought back killer grapes, huge, like they had never seen. This land flows with milk and honey. There's just one problem. There are some people dwelling in the land. Uh, their cities are fortified. They are very large. They are descendants of Anak. Huh. Anak is the family of the Nephilim, the giants in Genesis chapter six. The Amalekites are there, they're enemies. The Hittites are there, the Jebusites are there, the Amorites are there, the Canaanites are there. It's, it's full, it's full of our enemies. That's the problem. But Caleb from the tribe Judah, he trusted God. He said, it's okay, let's go. Let's go up at once. We can occupy it. We are able to overcome. But there were other men in the group of spies who said, oh, we can't go up against this people. They are too strong. They did not trust God's word. And they brought back an evil report to the people. You know what that's called? Fake news. 
they brought fake news and they said the land through which we have gone to spy out it's a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people saw in it men of great stature the nephilim they really stressed those big nephilim we look like grasshoppers compared to them they're giants we look like grasshoppers they put a big fear into the people they have giants and we are grasshoppers we'll never win even with god on our side we'll never win fake news joshua and his fellow israelites were strong and courageous they listened to the word of god they heard it and they obeyed it and they went forward they trusted in the lord and they forged a way into the holy land and they won many battles as god promised them they would but after joshua died Joshua lived to be 110 years old and he was a faithful servant of the Lord and did God's work. But after Joshua died, we head into the book of Judges. The book of Judges, if you have time, read it from start to finish. It is Israel's complete failure. The complete, they fail to complete the conquest of the Holy Land in the book of Judges. It goes from bad to worse. In our Bible, in your Catholic Bible, you have 73 books. It's like a library. They're in categories. 40 six Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books. That Catholic canon was decided in 382 AD at the Council of Rome, and St. Jerome was commissioned to translate the Greek text into the Latin Vulgate. For 16 centuries, that canon was never, ever questioned. But in the Protestant Reformation, it was decided that only 39 of the 46 Old Testament books were inspired word of God. They did not fit with someone's particular theology, and they wanted them removed, and they will call them the Apocrypha, seven books they will take out of the Bible that had been for 16 centuries. Apocryphal means a, uh, of doubtful authenticity. Martin Luther said these books are useful, but they are not God-breathed. And so seven books were removed from the Bible. If you're using a Catholic not a Catholic Bible, you'll see you don't have these seven books. What we're looking at in this study this year are these historical books. This category of the library is called historical. We're also looking at Psalms, which is a wisdom poetry book. But if we have to look at judges to know this period that we're talking about right now, and we went through Samson last week, and it was quite eye-opening, and we kept seeing all throughout the story of Judges, the cycle of sin. Israel is serving the Lord. They fall into idolatry. They become in bondage to sin. They cry out to God. God raises up a judge and Israel is delivered. They go along for a number of years and the whole thing comes up again. So there's 21 chapters in Judges. It keeps going from bad to worse. And the final sentence, in those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Moral relativism. If you do read the book of Judges, a warning, an alert that it's very disturbing and it's very violent. It's a book of tragedies. And Israel's growing moral corruption. They're becoming like the nations around them that they're trying to fight and conquer. And they take on their gods and they fall into sin and idolatry. And they have a failure to claim the land that God promised was theirs because they don't trust God's word. Now, if you look at a bird's eye view, like God does, you see this is the same thing we do. We, we get trapped in sin. We become a slave to the sin we're trapped in, our favorite sin, whatever it is. We hit rock bottom. We call out to God. Hopefully, we go to confession, and then we have a moment of conversion or a metanoia where we turn our life back to God and we begin again. This is the human condition. 
This is what Judges is showing us in a different way. Today we learn to obey God is better. Jesus Christ himself said it in Luke 11 verse 28 when he said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. You will be happier. You will find beatitude. God's word is good. Okay, so today in 1 Samuel 9 we start. And there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeora, son of Bekortha, son of Apraha, a Benjamite and a man of wealth. This happens to be Saul's father. He's very rich. He's from tribe Benjamin. Do you remember who tribe Benjamin is? That's going to be very, very important to understand who Saul is. Just as a refresher, there's a great love story we studied in Genesis between Jacob and Rachel at the well. You remember meeting a man at the well? Not the bar well, the, the camel well. Yes. Okay, Leah was his first wife by deception with the veil over her face, but then he gets his true love after working another seven years, total of 14 years, he finally, Laban the father, gives him Rachel. One problem, she's barren. She can't conceive. The other sister is popping out babies one after another. So we get into this baby war. Yet Leah, the first wife, knew she was unloved. In comparison to Rachel, she called herself the unloved wife. She has these three sons right off the bat. The first one she's going to call Reuben because then the Lord will look upon my affliction and surely now my husband will love me. Nope. Has another kid. It's a boy. Oh, I'm going to call him Simeon because the Lord has heard that I am hated. I'm hated by my husband and he has given me a second son. Oh, now Jacob's going to love me. Nope. Has another pregnancy. It's a boy, Levi. Oh, I'm going to call him Levi because now my husband will be joined to me because I have borne him three sons, the divine number. He's going to love me now. Nope. Finally, she conceives again. She has a son. His name is Judah. She forgets her husband and she just says, this time I'm just going to praise the Lord. I'm just going to praise the Lord for the gift of life. I'm going to name him Judah. I will praise the Lord. Ah. This is the one that's going to be blessed by God. This is the one that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is going to come from Judah. Son number four, he'll be for the north, the south, the east, the west, all ordinal directions, the Messiah of all. Well, then God remembered Rachel, the barren one, and God listened to her and opened up her womb, and she conceived a son. Oh, God has taken away my reproach. I'm going to call him Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Well, Rachel's son Joseph, you know, was Jacob's all-time favorite son. So much so that the other brothers became extremely jealous and wanted to get rid of him. They, they wanted to kill him. They instead decided to throw him in a pit. Eventually, they sold him to the Midianites. He's gone. They bring the bloody coat of many colors back to Jacob. And remember that Rachel had sat on Laban's household idols, and Jacob cursed whoever had stolen his idols and said, they shall die. And he did not know it was his beloved Rachel. She's covering them with her skirt, and she tells her father, I can't get up. It's my time of the month. Well, Rachel does die. She dies a young death, and she dies in childbirth with her second son. She had a very hard labor, and the midwife said, don't fear, you have another son. You bore Jacob another son. And as her soul was departing from this earth, she's dying, and she calls out, his name will be Benoni. But his father Jacob changed his name and called him Benjamin. Before dying, she called him Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. But Jacob changed his name to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Remember that, my right hand, my blessing hand. Remember the right hand of the father, the blessing hand, the right hand. He wants to name Benjamin right hand son. Joseph's gone in his mind. He's been killed in his mind. Benjamin will be son of my right hand. 
Well, Rachel did die. She was buried on the road on the way to Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Jacob sets up a pillar by her tomb. It's there to this day. Rachel gives him two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And today we learn that Kish is from Benjamin. Saul is from Benjamin. Benjamin means son of my right hand. Saul is from this tribe. Now, whenever I want to figure out how a boy's going to be, which tribe is which, I always go back to Genesis 49, because in Genesis 49, Jacob is giving the final blessing to his sons, and he's going to have a word for each son. And I wanted to see what did he say about Benjamin. And this was Benjamin's blessing from Jacob from his right hand. He said, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning, devouring his prey, and at evening, dividing the spoil. That's all Benjamin got for a blessing, that he's a ravenous wolf. Hmm. Benjamin, a ravenous wolf, devouring his prey, and at night, dividing the spoil. Remember this. Saul is from this tribe of Benjamin. Now, after the death of Moses, Joshua goes into the promised land. He divides it into 12, one for each tribe. And in the south-central Palestine area, that's the section given to Benjamin, the land, the promised land. Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, happens to be in Benjamin's land. Oh, wow. We don't know about Jerusalem yet, but that's where the temple of God's going to be. That's where the true presence of God is going to be. And that's Benjamin's land. But it borders right on the border with Judah's land. So look at this. If we go up a little, that's Benjamin's section. There's Judah's section. The red star is Jerusalem. You see it's in Benjamin's fence line. And what did Jacob say when he blessed Judah? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Leah's son number four. I will praise the Lord. So we've got a little closer up there. You see that Jerusalem is in Benjamin's land. Remember that for later. Okay, here's our historical books. We're in Judges. To understand Benjamin's family, you have to look at the book of Judges because this is also Saul's family. One Benjamite judge I want to point out to you is Ehud. You all remember Ehud, right? Well, Ehud is the second judge of Israel, and he will rule for 80 years. That's two biblical generations, 80 years, and he's a Benjamite. The Benjamite tribes in the book of Judges are bookends. So we start with them and we end with them, and it goes downhill. We're going from bad to worse, and, and Israel is just going to go down and down and down and down and down. So Ehud gets only 18 verses in the Bible, but listen to his story. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because Israel had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Eglon of Moab gathered to himself the Ammonites, the Amalekites, and they went and they defeated Israel. They took possession of the city of Palms, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. But then the people cried out. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the cycle, and the Lord raised up a deliverer, a judge named Ehud, a judge of Jerah from the Benjamite tribe. The Benjamite left-handed tribe. Remember that the left-handed tribe, okay? Ehud's a lefty, and he's a Benjamite. The people of Israel sent tribute taxes to, to the king Eglon of Moab. Ehud took the taxes. Ehud made for himself a sword, a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. He girded it on his right thigh under his clothes. He presented the taxes, the tribute, the money to Eglon, king of Moab. Eglon was a very, very fat, fat 
fat, heavy man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the taxes, the tribute, he went away. He sent the people away that had carried the tribute. And he himself turned back at the sculptured stones, Gilgal, and said, I have a secret message for you, O king of Moab. And the king said, silence. He sent everyone away, all the attendants, everyone out of his presence. He only let Ehud, the left-handed Benjamite, come in. And he came up to him. He was sitting alone in his cool on the roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message for you from God. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, the hand he wasn't expecting. With his left hand, he took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into the king of Moab's belly. And the hilt of the sword also into his belly. It went in after the blade, the hilt, and the fat closed in over the blade, for he did not even draw the sword back out of his belly, and then the dung came out. Whoa. This is the first Benjamite judge. And then the dung came out is important because the servants come in. Ehud then locks the door, and he climbs out through the roof, and he gets away, and he locks the king in there. Okay, and when he's gone, the servants come and they're, they're trying to see what, what's taking the king so long. What are they doing in there? And they can smell the dung. So they're like, oh, he's relieving himself. We'll give him time. And they're waiting and they're waiting and they're smelling and they're smelling. And they wait until they're at an utter loss. He still hasn't opened the chamber. And when they finally break in and open it, they see he's dead on the floor and Ehud has escaped. Ehud has gone back to his people and said, follow after me for the Lord has given the enemies of the Moabite into your hand. And they go with Ehud and they have a fight against the unprepared Moabites and they kill 10,000 Moabites and Ehud is made the judge and there is peace in Israel for the next 80 years, two generations. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. He's an Ehud is a Benjamite. So is Saul. Okay, things keep going from bad to worse. The other bookend of Judges, if we go to Judges 19 and 20, we'll hear more about the tribe of Benjamin and the Benjaminites. It's very, very disturbing. Civil war has broken out among the Israelite nations, and it's going to be between tribe Benjamin and the 11 other tribes. So you got one against 11. It's a civil war with their own brothers, their own brotherhood. And here's the cause of the war was a Levite priest and his concubine wife are lodging in a Benjamite town called Gebeha. And they won't, it's, it's very similar to Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis chapter 19. The Benjamites want the priest they want to rape the priest. They want him to throw the priest out. And instead, they throw out his female concubine. And she is raped all night long by the Benjamites. And her master wakes up in the morning, the Levite priest. He opens the door of the house. He is ready to go on his way. They're just lodging there for the night. And he opens the door, and his concubine is lying on the threshold of the door. And he says, get up, let's get going. But there was no answer. And he put her on his ass and the man rode up and went away to his home. She's dead, she's dead. And when he enters his house, the Levite took a knife. He laid hold of his concubine and he divided her limb by limb. That was part one of the first book of Samuel, chapters nine through 15 on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit seekingtruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.